Hey everybody, David here. Welcome back to Blowout, and this week we've got a nice treat for you, an interview that I recorded uh, with Andrew Ola, who is one of the most knowledgeable people at the forefront of like the upstream denim market that uh, I think I have ever met in this business. So if you're not familiar with what I mean when I say upstream, so it's like, okay, we're here as consumers and we're buying jeans or like denim jackets or whatever. We're buying stuff like from the stores and or from the brands directly. But then you go a level up and the brands, they have to buy their fabric and from someone else, you know, they have to buy denim. They generally do not make it themselves. Very, very rare. And the people that make the fabric... Well, they have to buy the cotton from somewhere that gets grown. And there's just like, you know, we're here like in a the the kitty section of the pool. Like it's just so shallow what you're exposed to as a consumer. And then it gets so much deeper and deeper and deeper, you know, like if the shelf drops off into the ocean of all the variables and all the different people and all the supply chains that go into producing denim and, you know, just producing a single garment. From the the raw fiber to the spinning to the weaving to the uh, cutting and sewing to the washing. And yeah, Andrew has been in this business for almost 50 years, uh, starting out as someone that you know represented uh, uh, different mills, like you know was one of the first people to be selling Japanese denim um, when it was first a thing, like uh, over 40 years ago. And uh, more recently, at least in the, the time that I've known him, he has uh, run the Kingpins trade show, which is you know one of the few dedicated to denim trade shows in the uh, like fabric industry. So you know, like all these mills come together for a couple times a year, bring all their samples out there, and all the brands come in, and that's where they go and they buy up all the different fabrics that they're going to have in their next collection. Uh, and Kingpins was like, you know, had the, the vision of like making this a much more international thing, as you'll hear from Andrew, um, beyond what used to just be, you know, premier vision that everyone had to show up in Paris uh, every year to make all this business happen. But he's taken it a, a much further than that of um, through Transformers, like this other initiative that they have through Kingpins of just trying to bring people together that have transformative ideas uh, in the industry and get those implemented much more quickly than they would be otherwise able to do just through, you know, word of mouth and those people trying to knock on doors. Uh, it was also uh, the person to bring Denim Days and, you know, set up a denim festival in the United States. And, you know, we're going to hear all about that, including, um, you know, what his early days were like in the industry, um, what it's like to run kingpins and where he thinks the denim industry is going and, you know, if denim can be sustainable or not and what it will take to, to get there. So I hope you enjoy the interview and you can find out everything that Andrew is doing at uh, www.kingpinsshow.com. We'll have a link for that in the description, but hope you enjoy. Oh, Andrew, thank you very much for being here today. Um, thank you for having me, Dave. Yeah, really excited to have you here as someone who is, uh, I mean, I guess like if you're an industry person such as ourselves, uh, most people know who you are and everything about kingpins. But from a consumer point of view, it's uh, the further upstream you go, the more uh, sort of behind the scenes 
everything that's happening in the fabric, like buying and selling world and you know, how denim actually gets made. So I'm really excited for people to uh, understand like a, a, another window into that world that you don't often see if you're just a consumer. Well, I've been behind the scenes in the denim industry for 47 years. Yeah, that's something that I'm uh, excited to talk about here of uh, a little bit of background on yourself before you got uh, to the point of kingpins and running you know, one of the biggest denim trade shows uh, in the industry of uh, how you first got involved in denim some 47 years ago. Well, I um, started selling textiles for my dad as a summer job. My father, my father started the company in 59. The company's history is to represent textile mills and sell their products. That's really what it was. So I started to work for him part-time in 1973. So that's a really long time ago. And then he, I did that in the summers uh, when I was going to college, University of Toronto. And then in 76, he died. And so I ended up in this business that was selling all sorts of different textiles. I was a kid. I didn't know anything about anything. And what I did know was that I didn't like a lot of the customers. That they were, that especially in the women's sportswear, it was a big business in those days. I would wear business, especially in Canada. But I really, really liked the jeans companies. Um, it was a time when the first denim mills were opening outside the United States. It was a very, very kind of like green, wide open field kind of time. And Levi's opened their first office outside the United States in Toronto, really near where I lived. And I got to meet those guys because I was selling them shirtings. And I really liked their behavior and their, their the dignity that they gave to their vendors. And then the rest of the jeans people that I met, I mean, there were companies like Landlubber and they were pretty funky. Um, and a lot of the other jean companies were people that were my own age or a couple of years older than me. So I really, really liked the environment of working with people my own age and really, really liked the big corporations like Levi's. And then eventually Wrangler moved there. And I love the gene business, the behavior of the people. So then I tried to get mills so I could sell to those people and get out of my other business. And that's, what I, that's really what I did. I just got it. I didn't realize it was going to be a growing business. Jeans are what I wore as a kid. And uh, I just liked the people in the business. It wasn't denim that was the first thing. You said you were doing shirting and other fabric. I sold flannels. I sold flannels and I sold yard dyed shirtings, plaids. The first mill that I worked for was... Um, you guys probably heard of it. A lot of people out there have heard of it called Russell Corporation. They get famous for Russell Athletic. But oh, in yeah. those days, they had a yarn dye division. And I worked for the yarn dye division and sold for them in Canada. And then the other area that I sold was in Portugal. Portugal is very, very famous for making the best flannels in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, and flannels were a hot item in those days. And nobody else made them as good as the Portuguese. So I sold that. And that was the two things that got me into the jeep business. And I just wanted to sell those companies more and more stuff. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, what was the different way that you felt like the, the jean companies or the, the denim business had a different approach as the, the rest of uh, the fashion industry? That, and you described that they, they didn't treat their, their vendors all that well, or they, they weren't thinking ahead? Levi's uh, had standards, for example, which is the first thing that you noticed. So when you had a problem, um, Levi's deferred to their standards and, and their quality control. So all of the issues that ran around business were all objective criteria. The general business, the general industry had no standards in those days. And so everything was subjective. So people would just get angry and rude over problems that they might have been wrong about. 
and data was very, very unclear. So it was all very confusing. And then there was the corporations like Levi's, and then there were all the startups of individuals and small companies. Those were all owned by baby boomers. So it was a lot different um, atmosphere. And when you talk about no standards, is that like there's no uh, like fiber content standards or no um, like weight or something? You're just like touching the fabric and having to make a decision like like on the spot there. No, fiber content um, is is a national legislation. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like things like tear strength, like the fabric rips, oh, yeah, or the, the fabric labs, or that the fabric has too many like neps or something, and somebody would complain about it. Somebody would call you and say, "Oh, this fabric has too many spots on it," you know, or something that was wrong with the fabric, and it was very subjective. Nobody ever discussed what it was supposed to be like before you shipped it. In those days, there were very. It was a very new world. It was a new frontier. So everything was just being built. All the structures of the jeans industry that exists today. Yeah, and the, the denim guys had a better sense of what they they wanted and how they were going to operate. Um, in in terms, or were they just like a bit more uh, easygoing in terms of like neps and irregularities? They were totally funky, and it was a lot. Was, yeah, they were much more. Uh, they were young. They were all young. We were all. In those days, a lot of the jean brands were owned by 27-year-olds, 28-year-olds. So it was, it was really like new. It's like, it was like internet startups, actually. It was like, yeah. that's, what the, that's what the jean business was like in the 70s. Huh. Like any uh, people that are still around today, like a, a, that cohort that have, uh, have come up? Well, my first customer was, um, our second customer was Bob Silver from Silver Jeans. Oh, yeah. And uh, but all the rest of those companies are all gone. Hmm. It sounds like a great time to do it because, like in the seventies, that was when denim was going a lot more mainstream, and the uh, it, it going out of being just a pure workwear fabric and becoming more of a, a fashion thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at that time, that was really the start of the jeans industry. I mean, you yeah. can't have an industry unless you have production. So that was the beginning of, of, for instance, Italy producing denim for the first time or Japan producing denim for the first time. Those were the initial days, or Hong Kong. These were all the beginnings of, the, of, of an industry, because first you produce the fabric, then you have to have a garment factory. So all of that was new. Until then, everything was producing inside the United States. Uh, so all this international stuff, you're describing it just like, you know, nailing one board like uh, in front of yourself at, at each step along the way, but- Totally. Yeah. Oh, what was the growth like, you know, coming out of the 70s of you just being like, okay, denim is the thing that I feel like I want to do because these are the cool people. And uh, where did it go from there? It, it didn't grow so fast for me. I mean, it was like consistent. Um, I would say I defined jeans as the product that I wanted to be in. So um, to me in those days, jeans used um, denim, they used corduroy, and they used twills. So there was a combination of three different categories of fabrics denim just being one and so i was involved in all three fabrics and wanted to be involved in all three fabrics and shirtings for the jeans industry so the business was growing but it wasn't wasn't like a massive growth it wasn't like till the 80s it really started going crazy also i moved my business to the united states in the 80s because i wanted bigger orders uh, yeah there was a limitation there's a ceiling of what you could do in canada yeah, Canada. The population in Canada in those days was like 25 million, and the population in the United States was like 270 million. Yeah, so, a lot yeah. more legs you can put jeans on. So I was more interested in selling Levi in San Francisco than Toronto, who was just two miles from my office. 
Right. Oh, so that was like selling fabric directly to Levi's like Canada and they had their own like factories and their own divisions and their yes. own buying. Yes. They had their own factory in Brantford, Ontario. Oh, and that's the thing that, uh, at least in my conception of the denim industry today, like, you know, everything is the same everywhere. Almost like you don't have, you have things that are made for specific markets, but you aren't doing like specific fabric buying and such for, for those markets or, uh, that a decent understanding of it that, you know, that, that sort of setup is different. Well, I think first though, the starting point was in the seventies, there was an owner of every brand and then he had a factory and he had a fact, his own factory. Yeah. So today there's owners of brands and none of them have factories. Yeah. Other, that's that's other, my experience too. Other than AG, I don't know, or citizens. I don't know a single brand that has their own factory. Yeah. I can count them like one hand, the number of people that make it themselves. And that's like Doesn't three exist. of them that have like six sewers in a like warehouse in, uh, in LA. That, yeah, not really big ones. Yeah. I'm talking about big ones that would make a hundred thousand jeans. Yeah, yeah. No so that, that's that. the that's the biggest change. And Levi changed their descript, self description sometime in the late '80s, and they called themselves a marketing company versus a manufacturing company. That was a huge, huge change. Our industry completely altered their definition and aspirations. They wanted to be marketing entities versus manufacturing entities. Yeah. So they own the red tab, and they just hire other people to put it on things. It's sort of the. They don't hire other people. It's kind of like, 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 like the way Apple works. They design it, and then they have different people that they select to do all the different components and assembly. So in terms of you like moving your business down to, uh, to the States and, I guess, selling more direct to uh, denim manufacturers, or I guess not denim manufacturers, denim designers there, as, as we just discussed, um, like how did things you know, develop to the point where you were ready to start your own denim trade show? Like where, what does the, the story of the, the leap from being someone representing mills to, or are we getting ahead of ourselves there? No, it's okay. We were selling fabrics. I moved the company to, I moved the company entirely to the United States in 98 and between 98 and 2002, we tried to meet more and more customers because we're, for, we're a foreign entity and we're trying to meet new people. And it was going at a slower speed than I wanted. So there, at that time, the trade show setup was that there was a huge show in Paris every year called Premier Vision. And everybody would trek over to Paris twice a year. And there was this massive, massive show. And there would be nylon fabrics in one area and wool in another and prints in another and um, denim scattered throughout it. And I thought, it didn't make any sense. Like, why would people from New York have to go? to Paris. And secondly, why would our industry not have their own show? We're bigger than all those other industries. And so we decided to start a little tiny supply chain show. Um, and the first show was in Soho in New York, in an art gallery, 25 Mercer Street. And uh, we had like 13 different companies at the show. And um, we, start, we didn't have huge aspirations. But what we thought was that it was a nice place for people to go and see new things and see. When I say supply chain and if people are listening and don't really understand it just imagine an iphone all the pieces on the table mm -hmm. you'd have all the suppliers of all those pieces plus the people who assemble it all in a room that was the idea so that's what we started it was very humble and then the idea we had was that we would take our show to the people not the people go to the show so the historical idea was that the shows were always in paris or frankfurt or you had to go Mm -hmm. And so we took our show to Los Angeles. We took our show to 
Bangalore to Shanghai to Hong Kong. We just took our show absolutely everywhere and took it to the people. And that's how we started the business. Yeah. What you're describing with like something like Premier Vision in Paris of like, if you were a brand that was making in New York and you were had fabric that you were selling in New York, you both had to go to Paris in order to have that uh, interaction. Yes. And it was such a nasty experience. That's the other side of it. And that's always driven my career because the shows make you stand in line. You have to stand in line to put your luggage away. You have to stand in line to get in. You have to take this train for an hour to get there. The whole process is incredibly unpleasant. Nobody ever says hello. Nobody ever says thank you for coming. I went to Paris for 25 years and not one person ever said hello to me. So I was like, I'm not having a show like that. I want to have a show where everybody's super friendly and gives you free water or food and treats you like a like a like you you deserve to be treated or you be treated in, in someone's house, not just like cattle. You know, like you go over here and shut up and do that. this. Is the way the shows were historically treating people. That was another element that really upset me and bothered me, which we thought we could we could do something different with. Yeah, that's been my experience when I've been at PV as well. It's uh, just, yeah, you're shuttled through sort of like a cattle to like see all the things, go to the things that you need to go to and get out because there's, you know, 10,000 people that need to get in after you. You know, Sam Walmart has that little greeter idea, you know, the little person says, hey, how you doing? And I know it's I know it's a small thing, but if it's done genuinely, it's really nice. Someone says, good morning. You know, when you come, would you like a glass of water? Would you like an orange juice? Yeah. Just uh, it's the little things that do make that difference, which you know, I have noticed when I've attended Kingpins, it's always I'm, I'm the best fed at that trade show. And uh, it's generally the most pleasant where you can actually hear people and you're not uh, like elbow to elbow with everyone in there. We really want we really want want people to enjoy the experience of going and find it as, um, as humane as possible. Yeah, yeah, humane. That's a good way to put, uh, to put it. It was uh, the thing, like, I guess when I first got into trade shows, I, at first I was very excited of like, wow, I'm here. I'm getting to see all these big players and everything. And then after a couple seasons, like, oh, God, it's trade show season again. I've got to, like, get myself prepared uh, for this, like, a uh, couple weeks here. Um, but yeah, like, what was it like trying to gather that first cohort of people for... Uh, for Kingpins one deck down in Soho, you say you have to get all the um, different supply chain manufacturers. in. so like who were your, your first you know, denim manufacturers and trims and uh, washing folks? Like what are all the different pieces that you have to assemble for the supply chain? Well, the first was we worked for Carabo in Japan. So Carabo had four divisions. So the four divisions where we had denim produced in Japan, we had denim produced in China. We had a factory in Thailand that made peace dyes. And we had a factory in Japan that made peace dice. So we made four little booths just of Carabo so that customers could see all the different segments of Carabo, not as one collection, but as four separate entities, which they were. And then we invited, which was the most famous laundry in the world at that time, was Martelli in Italy. We were friends of mine. You're probably too young to have heard of Martelli. I'm but, afraid I am. <laughs> but Martelli is, um, in the, in, from my point of view, and a lot of the people have been in the business for a long time. They actually created the best jeans. And they were the ones that, that Diesel was built on or Replay was built on. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, they came and a company in Italy who made hardware called Cobra came and um, all sorts of people like that. Yeah. The, best in, the best in class in the production of a proper gene in those days. 
Was it difficult convincing them to, you know, not just come to this one show in New York, but also get on the road with you and go to all those places like Hong Kong and Bangalore and, uh, or did the results sort of speak for themselves in terms of what they were able to sell in this new model? We were all cutting, nobody, nobody had a clue if it would be successful. So the first show we did in New York, everybody was like, cool, we'll just come to New York because we'll visit customers. If they don't show up, we'll go visit them in the city when we're there. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, so what's, what's a couple days in this art gallery? Yeah, so everybody was like, they went along with me. Um, going into different cities um, required different um, sourcing of vendors and required, um, yeah, some work. It wasn't like just easy, easy schmeasy. Mm. And was it a new concept for a lot of these people to have a trade show that's just totally. like devoted to denim and jeans? Totally. Especially having somebody in New York saying, hey, you want to go to Bangalore and show your stuff? <laughs> and they were like, well, what am I going to get out of it? And how much does it cost? And how many customers are you going to get? And, you know, all these kinds of things. And we would say, we don't know. This is new. Yeah. We don't know, but we'll say hi to you on your way in. And that, that counts for something. <laughs> but we'll, you know, we'll, we'll work with the local market and we'll get people to come and see the products. Uh, uh, how did that evolve from that, that first show? Because I know you're still doing some of the, uh, the travel around the, the Kingpin's moves, and you have it in China and Amsterdam and New York. Uh, but like, what was the like after that first show? I, I'm guessing it was success because uh, success we're still here. Yeah, we never really not made money. I think we um, always made some profit somehow, um, other than the first few shows. Although we have a joke in the company that we're an unintentional nonprofit entity. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we did shows all over the place. We settled down at a certain point, and so we kind of put our line in the sand. And we may have, we've had a show pre-COVID. We had a show in Hong Kong for I think thirteen or fourteen years. And then, rather than just have a show in Shanghai, we we built our Chinese market slowly, patiently, in what we call B cities, like you know, not A cities. So we have shows in Hangzhou and Guangzhou. Um, Hangzhou is an internet capital of um, fashion, and Guangzhou is a manufacturing capital. So we put our shows in those two places, and uh, that's been that's that's been growing before COVID. We started out with like eighteen booths, then we went to like, and I think six paid, and then we went to like twenty five booths, and everybody paid. To like at the end, we were like at fifty or sixty booths where everybody paid. So that was that was really growing, and it was really doing well. And then in 2014, we started our show in Amsterdam. And for some reason, that show took off. It just, people love it. It's our flagship show now. We live in a fast-paced world. Sometimes, you just need to slow down and stop. Heddles Plus, the noon membership program of exclusive content, giveaways, discounts, and a community chat forum. Try a month free with the code extra blowout. Oh, had that like the growth like sort of tracked alongside the growth of the denim market itself, or was it just sort of everyone that was existing in the same market like found that Kingpins was a good place to be? The manufacturing base changed over the last 25 years. So when we really started Kingpins, there was a pretty healthy production in Europe of denim. There was a pretty healthy and active, vibrant production in Japan. And today, almost all of that's gone. And what's left is um, this burgeoning Pakistan, Bangladeshi, Indian, Turkish. Um, denim mills, there's zillions of them. 
all the investment, all the investment in our industry, 100% of the investment is outside the United States, Europe, and Japan. Uh, uh, how has that affected, uh, I guess, how Kingpins runs? Because all those people, like when I've been to uh, Kingpins, they, they show up in New York and they show up in Amsterdam and that still seems to be where like, business is done. The mills are the mills in, in these developing nations. They hire designers from first world nations, and they create really beautiful products. And just the mills' location has changed. That's really it's unfortunate, but it's what, I mean unfortunate in the sense if you were in the business and did, if you were a worker in a factory in Japan, you know you, the amount of work that you get today compared to what was available um, thirty years ago is mind blowingly different. Um. They can think. They can partly thank Uniqlo for that, <laughs> uh, for sending all of their production like out to China and other uh, different burgeoning um, markets. I think I know. I think what Uniqlo did. Uniqlo still uses a lot of Japanese fabric or whatever's left, but they lowered the value of a jean. When I first went to Japan in 1980, a jean was 6,900 yen, and today, I mean, the consumer believed that a jean was worth 6,900 yen, and today, what is it now? Almost 42 years later, 42 years, the consumer now thinks a jean's worth 2,900 yen or 1,900 yen. Mm. So that, I think, is um, kind of an incredibly sad story for, the, for a, an iconic product like a jean. Yeah, that it's, it's been a, a race to the bottom uh, in a lot of different niches, I guess, except the one of like the, the raw denim uh, heritage market that emerged out of it almost as a... I don't know, reactionary response to it. Uh, do you see any reason behind that of like what devalued denim? Is it just like it's ubiquity that it, it became too, uh, too overexposed? Or like, why, why do people think that jeans, you know, like 40 years later are worth half what they were back then? I think it's just marketers that took advantage of um, the situation, the growth, demand, and um, just demolished the structure that existed before. And do you think that that gene that was, you know, 6,900 yen is, was a higher quality product than the, the 2,900 yen one of today? It's a really good question when you talk about denim and quality. Um, cause everybody has a different, um, opinion of what's quality. So is quality the cotton quality is quality. The, um, the sewing quality or the, or the, or the, Threads per inch. What is what is quality? I'm not really sure. Even I understand about the quality. Mm. So that's another problem in our industry is that quality is a is a funny funny word. Mm. Agreed. It's a subjective term, but in things of like I don't know, is the the fabric getting lighter? Is the no. uh, yeah the washes getting uh, I don't know? Are they cutting corners in places, or is it just you know it's it's happening in different developing countries so that all the costs are able to be reduced? No, it has nothing to do with that because anybody, anywhere can make anything they want. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, different people have different fingerprints. So personally, I like Japanese jeans the best, that Japanese denim the best. Um, but that has nothing to do with uh, quality. That's just more like the, the workmanship of the person. It's like somebody um, cooking an omelet the way you like it. Doesn't mean it's a better omelet. Mm -hmm. True, but I don't know. Yeah, I guess like some people prefer margarine over butter in the same way. 
Well, that's a, that's a different product altogether. In, in jeans, you basically make it out of cotton. And um, cotton is cotton. And indigo is generally, the actual dye stuff is generally produced by one or, one or two companies in the whole world. So it's not like there's... When I started the business, uh, probably in the 80s, in the height of, of the growth of jeans, there was like 13 different chemical companies making indigo dye stuff. Today, there's mm-hmm. two. 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 Yeah. Oh, it's uh, it's the same product that both of them are putting out. It's what, like Dystar and uh, what's the other one? Acroma. Acroma. Dystar has like 60. Oh, there's a third company called Blue Connection in Singapore, but it's a small. Um, but basically, they're, it's the same. So, for instance, every Japanese mill gets the same dye that, they, that, that um, Old Navy gets, the same company. So, have you seen like the different products that people have made are different like denims have they homogenized uh, in that way uh it with less options for for things like dye yeah like when i worked for Corobo, we used to have special dyes that nobody else had um and we were so proud of them we would say oh this is our color and we could do that i mean people can still say it's their color because they're doing something technically different again like cooking they're using the same egg and they're just making it a different way or the same onion or garlic um, so people can still do that today, but the dye itself is homogenous. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, much, like, much like the cotton. Yeah, that, uh, a lot of the cotton has you know, it followed that same path. That, that, like, there's just a, a few different cotton. I guess you know, cotton has grown everywhere, but it all sort of gets you know, down to that lowest common denominator. Is that uh, what your experience with the cotton industry is as well? I wouldn't say the lowest common denominator. In our business, the, the, the lowest common denominator is the strength of the gene that you want to have. Mm-hmm. So you buy your cotton based on the quality of the, of the yarn that you want to have that goes inside your fabric. So if you want it to break at a certain tensile strength or a certain tear strength, you, you calculate the, the quality that you want and you buy the cotton length according to that. Mm-hmm. So there's no rush to the bottom. There's a rush to the quality that we need. Yeah, the the one that will do the job, I suppose. Yes. yes. Now, getting back to kingpins, uh, it has evolved not only just in uh, adding new cities and adding new booths and becoming a bigger show, but you've like branched out into quite a few different sectors of like having the Global Denim Awards and Transformers and just sort of becoming, I guess, the the hub of denim in terms of education and like prestige is the, the idea behind the, the Global Denim Awards. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to how Kingpin's like, developed from being just a trade show into something that uh, covers those other avenues. Well, the first thing is when we started Kingpin's, we really wanted to be an educational platform. So mm-hmm. what we wanted to do was to have experts um, explain things um, honestly because we felt that generally the industry was not explaining itself properly at all. And that the people doing the explaining about our industry from the, were from the New York Times or were from Atlantic Magazine or the Wall Street Journal or CNN. And those writers had no clue. So we were being defined by people outside the industry. So we wanted to educate people f- from experts inside the industry. So we started with seminars during our events, and then it grew to... Um, a whole day of seminars that we called Transformers. We came up with this concept that 
there are companies and there are human beings that are transformative. They invent new mm -hmm. chemistry, they invent new machines, they invent new technologies, new ways of doing things. Those are transformative companies or transformers. And the rest of the people are adopters. And they just sit in their chairs and they wait for transformers to come to them. And then they pick which technology or which idea they like or they don't like. So we wanted the transformers to be the ones talking. Mm -hmm. And so the first event we did was a trans Kingpin's Transformers event was on water. And the whole day was spent on the supply chain about water. And I'll never forget the first guy that spoke spoke about he was in the sprinkler business because everyone mm -hmm. says oh oh cotton uses so much water well he'd invented a sprinkler that actually guides how much water the plant needs and it used almost nothing and people were not aware this was true and this could happen that he spent his whole life on it he's a guy his whole life is about um water and the distribution of it to plants and he was really an expert no one had ever met anyone like him so the whole thing went through the whole supply chain of water. The next year we did garbage. The next year we did waste. The next year we did um, chemistry. So we went through the whole supply chain. And then finally we got tired of um, talking about what should be done. And so we started a foundation last year called the Transformers Foundation, where we educate and we, we try to commit change or create change for the industry to make it more sustainable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the openness of it, because like you go on the, the Kingpin's website in the Transformers section, there's hours and hours and hours that you can hear of these you know, Transformers talking about uh, the innovations that they're yeah, experts on, um, which, you know, I find refreshing as a lot of stuff is behind a paywall these days that, you know, literally like anyone can go on there and educate themselves. We're free. So everybody, I work and the people, most of the people in our foundation, we work two, three hours a day, every day without pay. Yeah, for two years. Now, mm -hmm. one, day, one day we'd like to get paid. We hope to get paid. I, I'm sure you know that feeling. But, um, yeah. but we do it because we love what we do and because we want to make a change in the industry. Mm -hmm. And have you seen like transformations happen from these? Like what the, uh, the, the person that you're describing that did uh, this innovative sprinkler uh, design, is that something that is, you know, now you can find on like cotton fields all over the world? Of course you have, there's technologies that are really important that are being, a, you know, taken up. There's like, a, there's a whole movement towards getting rid of polyesters and, you know, I'm just not talking about recycled polyester, but about like PLAs and their lactic acids and stuff that you can get rid of plastic. Um, there's so many things that we talk about that are ha having impact on the industry. We're, re we're really, really involved in transparency, for example. And I'm sure transparency will be a really, really important element of the industry in the next five or 10 years. Yeah, and it's the thing that uh, a lot of the, the denim industry, at least as I've noticed it in the last like five years, that sustainability and environmental friendliness is a thing that like everyone keeps hammering about like how much more sustainable can denim be? How sustainable can denim be? But they don't prove it. They don't make you have any proof of it. They just say they No, do. they just say it. And you, you see a lot of it. But, uh, I mean, what do you think that the denim industry could actually do to become more sustainable as someone that probably has a better handle on every different aspect of it than you know, anyone else that I've spoken to? I always say the same thing, honestly. If you look around the room that you're in this second, you look at all the objects in your room, it doesn't matter if it's a chair or glass or your microphone, you don't know the origin of anything in the room. You don't know where it was made. It was made by slaves with stolen merchandise. You don't have a clue. So as a, as a Society, I think it's the consumer's right 
to know where absolutely everything is from, what's inside it, and who made it. So I think this will be legislated. And over the next 10 years, people are going to have to say what farm they bought from, what kind of equipment they have, showing their factories, and having a complete supply chain visible to consumers so they can see. Not everyone's going to care and want to see it. They should have that human mm-hmm. right. And I think every gene will be like food. Food, you know, food today, you buy anything, it'll buy a bag of chips. It'll tell you how much trans fat is in there, how much salt is in there. I think every garment in 10 years will tell you exactly what is the environmental impact of every component. I'm convinced. I'm convinced of that. Uh, yeah, you, you're so right about the fact that like we're really, really alienated from the things that we see and use because they're produced so far away in such large scales in you know factories that we can't really even conceptualize. And these are the things that you know we're touching and feeling and but we should reject live our lives around. But we should reject any piece of any merchandise that we buy. We should reject everything unless we know all about it or have the right to. If a company is not telling you how they made it. They're either stupid or they're hiding something. Mm-hmm. So which do you think it is? They're most likely hiding something. And this is it's funny you mentioned the like thing about uh, having a bag of chips and the nutrition facts on it. This is a thing that I was advocating for last week on our podcast of having like a nutrition labeling and standards act, but for clothing. So you could see, you know, what are all the chemicals that were used here? And uh, you know, is if like there is something like, you know, uh, formaldehyde or other like chemicals in there that you don't necessarily understand, but you should have a right to be able to understand them of just what's in there aside from, you know, 98% cotton, 2% uh, elastane. That, that's really the only information you have to go on. That's one of my favorite chemical comments is nobody knows if any garment their granny's wearing is toxic. Yeah. No clue. No. No clue but- and, no, and no interest. Because this is all driven by consumers. Because if consumers said, hey, I'm not buying anything unless you tell me what's inside it. The companies would all change, but because they get away with it, they couldn't care less. Yeah, well, and at the moment, you don't really have a choice as a consumer because like, you have to wear something, and if no one else is doing it, like you, uh, you're sort of stuck unless you're out there like growing cotton in your backyard. And, well, you can <laughs> and reward spinning. You can reward by you're purchasing the companies that are actually have something which is um, seemingly true. Yeah, any brands that you think are presenting things that are seemingly true or that you believe are doing a, a, an earnest amount of transparency? No, I don't think anyone's doing a lot. I think Everlane is doing something more than nothing, a lot more than nothing. Mm-hmm. I think J. Crew is trying to do more than nothing. J. Crew, for example, has garments that have fair trade. Well, mm-hmm. the rhetorical question is, why would you not buy a garment that's fair trade? What is wrong with you? Like, mm-hmm. really? You don't want a garment that's, that's using workers with fair trade? Well, why not? Oh, because it costs $2 more. That's the... <laughs> you know why it costs $2 more? It's because the money, yeah, goes, they're, they're... the money goes to the workers. Yeah. So how awful is that for you? Mm-hmm. But like, those are the kind of decisions that I guess... I often hear that consumers are making on the spot of like, oh, like if they're two identical garments, even if one was produced by like objectively evil... Uh, uh, manufacturing standards that like they'll still go for the cheap one if it's if they don't have to think about it. Then you're going to have bad air for a long time in, in Colorado. If people keep doing yeah. that because the, so. the United Nations just released a report, and if anyone hasn't seen it, they should really take a look at it because the earth is boiling up. Yeah. And that's uh, a thing where you talk about that. I think it needs to be government regulation as well, because people aren't going to willingly, I think, decide to do this on their own uh, without I mean a lot of uh, uh, 
a lot of weight or maybe public pressure behind it, which hopefully is building through conversations such as this one. But yeah, it's, uh, we got a long ways to go. We do. We do. But we're on the path. I think we're on the path. I think there's lots of positive stories. So thinking about, uh, you know, Kingpins has been an in-person trade show for, you know, since its existence, but in the last you know, year and a half, everything has had to move online uh, for better and for worse. And in terms of like a, a textile trade show and like seeing trims and washes and fabric swatches, uh, how has it worked moving, you know, kingpins and this, uh, you know, buying and selling interaction between vendors online in the last year and a half? Well, all people who show fabrics or who show buttons and zippers and stuff to customers that have to show their products online. So there was no way we could get, get together. So you had to do it that way. And the customers had to buy it that way. There was no other way to do it. Mm-hmm. So then all of us tried to do it in a system that was the least um, painful. And so Kingpins, um, as a show, we went digital and we tried to explain all the things that we normally do in our shows and use it as an opportunity to get um, amazing people on, on air. Because one of the great things about COVID is you could get somebody on a Zoom call from Uruguay or from Mongolia, which we could never do in a real show. So we were having amazing guests. We still do. And I think that we can never do a seminar in real life as good as we can on digital, unfortunately. I mean, of course, it's much nicer in person, but Mm -hmm. the the quality of guest is amazing. Yeah, that you can have anyone from anywhere over the world uh, show up at a moment's notice, really. Yeah, it's it's mind blowing. It's like CNN. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like we're CNN and we just get anybody. And it has been sort of a democratization of quality because you go on someplace like CNN and it's someone that's you know doesn't how to know how to point the camera that's entirely backlit and they're an expert on such and such a thing. But uh, yeah, it's just everyone on their webcams from uh, where their office. We had some guy that was really cool in one of our shows from Pakistan, and he took he took his camera live to show his production facility and um, to show how it worked. I thought it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Was that how the presentations worked at that point? Um, uh, when you did Kingpins, it's not so much like, okay, here's everyone that's uploaded their photos of all their swatches and you can walk through it. It's more like a live feed of like, okay, for this like 20 minutes, we've got, you know, sortie. The next 20 minutes is Candiani. Uh, yeah, and they each get like a, a time to present themselves and, and show off their wares. Everybody can have as much time as they want, if they want to have or spend on the show and um, they can do what they want. Some people will present a product. Some people will finance or sponsor a seminar of um, like intellectual leadership, thought leadership kind of event, or some people want to just show their factory. I mean, everybody has different options. It's up to them. Everybody's tried all different things. We've all learned a lot in the last 18 months of what kinds of things people who are watching find funny or, or helpful or mm-hmm. compelling. And you've got the next one coming up in October, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, is that going to be uh, entirely online as well? or is, uh, Entirely, entirely online. Uh, do you think that it's a thing where kingpins is, as you said, uh, that you're able to have a much higher quality uh, presentation based on doing things digitally than in person? Do you foresee Semin- going back to in person seminars? Seminars, not necessarily the, the the booths. No, because when you show your fabric in real life, you get a completely different experience. You touch it, yeah, 
it's not you can't do that digitally the same way so it's an unfortunate reality that we're on digital and showing fabrics but it's kind of like showing food yeah, and we're all <laughs> waiting for the time when that's it's like having a food show you know on, online you know it's not quite the same and then uh wanted to discuss denim days as well uh as you know the kingpins being the the industry component and denim days more the the consumer focused one uh how would you describe the the concept of denim days to someone that's never experienced it before the concept was created by a guy in holland and um, the idea is beautiful. It's basically a festival of all things blue and indigo and a celebration of this beautiful, this beautiful dye, this indigo dye that we all love. And I love the concept. So I secured the rights to bring it to the United States. And we did events in New York and uh, three in New York and one in Nashville. And it was very unsuccessful for me. Wow. Broke, oh, my little heart. Broke my little heart numerous times. Oh, I'm sorry to hear it. So there's not going to be a future denim days here? Not with me. Not with me. Not there, with might, should, there should be. And I, I hope someone does it. Um, I love the idea, but it will never, for us, we'll never do that. That exact yeah. same model again. It's too, the brands and the, we, we didn't get support from the industry, which really mm. blew my mind. Really? Like uh, the, the, big, the big players didn't show up? Nope. They wouldn't, they wouldn't um, participate. Like RRL didn't participate. Levi's Main Craft wouldn't participate. Wrangler always did. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, most people in the industry um, would not, almost all the people in LA, all rejected collaboration with each other. Really? Do you think mm -hmm. that's more of like a speaking to the industry and that they uh, are a bit more hostile towards each other rather than having that, you know, collaborative we're all in this together i can't i can i can i still can't believe it actually it's one of the disappointments of my career is that the brands didn't understand what a great opportunity it was for our industry mm -hmm. um, to do something for consumers but it required everybody participating together like a chain and everybody wants to be their own little link oh well, I'm sorry to hear it, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad I got to attend. At least one Me too. Of them. <laughs> Me too. It was the best of uh, the New York shows were the perfect place to go shopping and see stuff that was really beautiful and blue. They were yeah. amazing. They were amazing events. We were very, very proud of them. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, maybe at another time. Oh, I guess closing up here, I wanted to hear your thoughts on the, the future of the denim industry is, is a thing that we, I guess, touched on a bit uh, earlier. The uh, everyone harping on sustainability without having too much uh, really substance to show for it. But, you know, other things that I've heard about of like a lot of people seem to be promoting hemp, um, things like recycled fibers, other performance fibers. Is there anything you're excited about? Anything that you think is uh, just sort of a load of hot air or like what, where do you think things are headed? I'm excited about data. So hemp is grown in every state. So how do you know what kind of chemicals are involved in the growing of hemp? Because when you make hemp turn into cotton, make feel like cotton and soft, you have to use a lot of chemistry. Um, there's no data on anything. So what I'm excited about is when there's data, nobody's ever done a data ch environmental check on polyester, on recycled polyester, on hemp, on cotton, and compare them properly. So I think that there's a lot of things that sound awesome coming down the pike. They really do, and it's very encouraging. But until there's a scientific tool in place, to capture 
the plot of land that grew that and mm -hmm. the process of bringing that to market to show the final result of the environmental impact. It's just all, you know, blabber. It's like saying, oh, Steve's a great guy. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah, and I, I've seen a lot of things from uh, mills that say like, oh, you can grow, you know, like four times as much hemp on the same plot of land as you can cotton, but you haven't seen anything to back that up? You can, from an agricultural point of view, you can, mm -hmm. but cotton basically is ginned and then put in fiber. Yeah. In many cases, hemp is called, goes through what's called cottonization. Right, because it's very like scratchy and tough uh, compared Correct. to cotton when it's grown. Cor Correct. So that process, nobody is talking about. Nobody mm. talks about the toxic chemicals involved. No one talks about where those chemicals go, where they come from. Nobody talks about any of that stuff. Um, so it's all just, you know, it's all great ideas. I think all this stuff is great. I'm always amazed by recycled polyester because the very existence of recycled polyester requires that we keep making more polyester. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to build a business on something recycled is kind of demented. The real problem is that we should stop polyester, period. There should be no recycled, no fresh, no polyester. This is what should happen. But instead, we're busy and we've been sold this bill of goods that we should be happy because we're recycling all this new stuff that's being poured out every single day. It drives me insane. I just can't even understand it. I understand that we don't have adequate response to it today. But the conversation of some of the green brands that recycled polyester is a green fiber is basically them saying, let's just keep making more and more polyester so we can recycle forever. Mm-hmm. That it's, it's the greenwashing of like, oh, you, uh, we just made it and then we recycled it so we can make it into something recycled. When I know people in China that get an order for recycled polyester and they immediately make virgin polyester and recycle it to fulfill the order. This is not the concept. Uh, excited about data. Is there any like study or any like uh, data survey that you would like to see if you, you know, were able to fund some research project? We are. We are working on a tool in our foundation. We call it the um, Transformers um, Transparency Tool. And we hope that before the end of 2022, we will have a tool that will do all the things that I'm hoping for. It's my dream. And that we can then go to the industry and say, listen, no more scores, no more subjective opinions. Here is the actual data of everything in your shirt that you're wearing. You can see you. Dave is wearing a beautiful cowboy shirt with um, all sorts of beautiful things on the shirt. But everything in his shirt should have a scientific valuation of its environmental impact. Mm. And I think we can do that in a year. I think we're really close, David. I'd be very excited to see that. I think farmers, um, we're trying to get John Deere people on one of our um, shows because I'm not sure people will realize this, but John Deere has picking equipment. And that picking equipment takes a sample of every, every row and could give you, if the, if the data was handled properly, they could eventually, two years from now, give you every single piece of information about every single cotton they pick. There's an incredible amount of data lying around that people don't understand and don't put together. So I think we're, we're on the precipice of a really huge, huge change um, where our industry can actually spit out the data that they're sitting on. 
Really? And you could actually conceptualize the uh, the cost, you know, the, not just the cost in dollars, but the cost in water and chemicals and everything totally. else that goes into making something. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Uh, I mean, you mentioned that there was a Finnish study that I just read earlier this week that was about uh, the different methods of wearing a, a pair of jeans and the environmental impact of like whether you wear them, whether you recycle them, whether you uh, like use a rental service or something like that. And they discovered that like, oh, the, the obvious thing, the, the best way to do it is just buy one pair and wear them a really long time. Right. And right. then there are things like they discovered that recycling and rental services, which often, you know, promote themselves as being the most environmental thing of like, oh, yeah, you, you, you wear it for a few times and you send it on to the next person who's going to wear it a few times. Those are the most harmful to the environment. Because you have to keep shipping things back and forth across the world to get this pair of pants to. They assign. I, I read the report briefly, but I don't think they assigned an actual scientific value on any of the stuff they said. It just said oh, they yeah, did they, the research. They did assign anything. Yeah, they did. They uh, they went through and they were like, okay, most things are driven on this type of truck, and most people are driving this kind of tr- car to get to the post office. And they had this bar chart of all the different like uh, aspects of the production process. Yeah, I thought it was well, quite in- interesting. I, I always thought it was really interesting that Levi, and this is online for anyone who's interested, but Levi has an LCA, uh, a life cycle assessment of a gene that they did many, many years ago. And the consumer accounted for 50% of the environmental damage. Consumer, mm-hmm. 50%. means that they wash their jeans too often. It means that you know, they use too much water when they wash it. They use a dryer and they shouldn't use a dryer. You went through and through. The consumer has a lot of role in the environmental impact of stuff. A lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the, uh, a similar finding in this study. Much more than the cotton farmer. Yeah, that they, uh, they said that rental could be a, a viable model so long as the person doing the renting or all the people doing the renting rode a bicycle to and from the post office. <laughs> that it was mostly the car trip. Like driving the uh, your jeans back to mail them is what uh, caused a lot of the emissions. So it's there are many many different pieces here that we're going to have to account for. Yeah, I just, I just think everybody has to like pay attention and have some standards. Yeah. Uh, uh, anything else that we didn't cover today that that sort of went through all the questions that I had, or anything else you want to talk about? It's an amazing industry, and I recommend the jeans industry to anybody who wants to have fun. And be involved with a great, great industry. I think it's a wonderful opportunity, and uh, I, I love it. Yeah, as do I. I mean, I've had fun, and I've uh, barely been in it. It'll be ten years next year. Wow. But yeah, uh, it is a great place, full of great people. Oh, uh, anything that you'd like to plug, like uh, uh, the Kingpin's website, Transformers, any upcoming events? We have. A, I would. I would like to plug our on-demand at Transformers Foundation for those that want to learn about about. Um, processes or learn why the New York Times story that you read about something is not true. <laughs> Great. And uh, is there a website for that? We can put that in the, the show notes. Transformersfoundation.org. Oh, thank you very much for your time, uh, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Always great catching up. Thanks for having me. Take care of yourself. <laughs>